Hi, I'm Linda Calabresi. I'm a GP and the medical editor of HealthEd. Welcome to our unique podcast series now available direct to your device. The series features some of Australia's leading clinical experts talking on topics that are both practical and important to Australian GPs. I'm Associate Professor John Litt. I'm a retired academic GP and public health physician, previously worked at Flinders University. I'm a member of the Immunisation Coalition Scientific Advisory Committee. Today I'm going to talk about what's new in Zoster and vaccination against Zoster. Here are my conflicts of interest. I'm not going to karaoke the slide, but it can be summarised that I actually largely are elaborating on what's outlined in the Immunisation Handbook and the guidance provided by ATAGI. So I'm an independent academic doing that, and I have worked for most of the vaccine manufacturers with a particular interest in vaccines in adults and older persons. I'm going to cover the, the burden of morbidity, uh, particularly the, the impact of stroke and, and actually getting zoster and, and why that puts you at increased risk of stroke. I'll give a, a very brief historic summary of the vaccine uptake, uh, a zoster vaccine uptake in Australia in terms of coverage and what GPs have said about it. And I'll focus most of the talk in a frequently answered uh, sort of question format on the recombinant Zoster vaccine. So I'll talk about the pivotal effectiveness studies, I'll talk about the safety and adverse effects and the guidelines produced by ATAGI and uh, with a particular focus on immunocompromised groups. So firstly, who's, who's at risk from Zoster? Well, we all are. Zoster is the second part of the varicella Zoster virus. And almost all of us have had varicella or chickenpox and, you know, in our teens or even younger. So in the serosurvey evidence from Australia, we know that about 97% of people have actually had exposure previously to varicella. So if you've had varicella, the virus is dormant in your system. And if your immune system declines, then you will get zoster. So we see about 150,000 cases a year, and that's probably on the increase. So the lifetime risk is about one in three. Putting it another way, for someone who gets the age of 85, one in two of those people will develop shingles or zoster. So this is a busy slide, but it's important to know who's at risk or who's at the highest risk of zoster, and there are several groups. Older adults, because their immune system declines with age, and that starts over the age of 50, so your T cells and your immunity against zoster gradually decline, allowing it to actually recur from its sort of hiding place in the dorsal root ganglion. Other groups, even though they only make up about 5 to 10% of the population, are those with immunocompromise. And that consists of a variety of conditions. It's not just one condition. Two common ones where there's certainly an increased risk of zoster is with HIV and with malignancies. Interestingly, family history. If you've got a family history of zoster, you're about two and a half times more likely to get it than people without a family history and some of the uh, autoimmune diseases like SLE and rheumatoid arthritis also have an increased risk of zoster. This slide breaks down in, in a bit more detail some of the other immunocompromised groups. And so the top row shows the risk in the immunocompetent population, which is about six cases per thousand person years. But if you have a stem cell transplant, which is the HSCT, then you can see the risk is about seven times higher than that background rate. And that's followed by things like haematological malignancy, polymyalgia, rheumatica, solid organ tumours and things like HIV. So different levels of immunocompromise and most of those are having an impact in terms of increasing the person's risk of zoster. So 
And a further question is, is the incidence of zoster rising? Well, it is, and there are probably two reasons for that. While we've vaccinated young people against varicella to stop them from getting either chickenpox or subsequent zoster, it actually takes out the wild circulating zoster or varicella in the community, and it was thought that that actually provided natural boosting to those people who previously had chickenpox. And the other thing that's happening is that younger people are actually, sorry, older people, uh, or people are getting older, people are getting older, and so they're actually at more risk. As I mentioned earlier, uh, you, one of the significant risk factors is actually um, increasing age. So it's going up, and you can see with the other countries there that we're not alone, that we're actually, it's happening right across the world. So just to reiterate, lifetime risk of zoster between about 20 and 30%. And so for a 60-year-old, that's about 40%. If you have a look at the final column, post-hepatic neuralgia, which is one of the main and debilitating complications of zoster, that also rises. So you can see that if you're a 60-year-old and you've got zoster, you've got about a 9% chance of getting post-hepatic neuralgia. By the time you get to 85, that's, that's nearly, nearly tripled up to about 21 cases. Now, this is in spite of the fact that a lot of people, older people, don't believe they're likely to get shingles. And so it's actually sitting in their dorsal root ganglion. You can actually be on a desert island and no one comes to visit, but you're still going to get zoster because it's actually within the body system. So the natural history, I'll do this very briefly because most of you be familiar with that. The primary disease is getting varicella and you get spots all over your body. The virus then becomes dormant in the dorsal root ganglion adjacent the spinal column in the sensory dorsal root ganglion. And when the immune system declines for whatever reason, because of age or immunocompromise, then that virus starts to increase in numbers and it causes a ganglionitis. And so it travels down the sensory nerve and to the affected dermatome. And so you can see the, the picture on the right showing the typical rash of zoster in that dermatome, which happens three to four days after um, uh, after the, the onset of the, uh, of the pain in the, in the dorsal root ganglion. So two or three days of pain, and then the rash typically appears. The severity of the rash is quite severe, both in the acute form and if the person gets post-hepatic neuralgia. So some people have contrasted it very similar to labour pain or to really bad headaches. And if you look at the post-hepatic neuralgia, that is also very similar to a range of other uh, rheumatoid conditions. So that it really does cause a lot of impact in terms of sleep, mood, ability to do your ADLs and other things there. So it's not just the pain, it is quite a problematic condition. Okay, so how do we treat zoster? Well, there are two parts to it. So in the acute phase, we've actually got people who uh, you know, have this rash and it, and it tends to blister and last probably up to four weeks. Now we know that antivirals, if we start them early, ideally within 72 hours, they shorten the cause the course of zoster, they actually reduce the severity, but they have no impact on the likelihood of the person developing post-hepatic neuralgia. So in most cases, it settles down within about three to four weeks. But if in someone who's unlucky and the pain continues, and if it goes on for more than three months, then we label it post-hepatic neuralgia, and the pain from that can last years. Post-hepatic neuralgia is one of the two commonest conditions presenting to pain clinics. And it's very difficult to treat, even with some of the uh, agents we use treating for neuropathic pain, like pregabalin. So people often need multiple agents, and even then are often dissatisfied with the type of treatment. And so 
the aim of what we want to do with zoster is to prevent it. Antivirals are a good start, but we actually need something to prevent the zoster in the first place, and that will be a, a vaccine. So the complications, I've already mentioned the main one, uh, PHN, and that occurs, that occurs under the neurologic consequences. There are other ones like cranial nerve palsies and things like, aseptic, like uh, transverse myelitis. Cutaneous uh, things can happen. You can actually get a secondary bacterial infection in the rash, and so that often needs some further treatment, and you can actually also occasionally get scarring. Zoster in the eye, second uh, branch of the fifth cranial nerve is really problematic and a whole lot of things happen from uveitis to even retinal necrosis. So if someone gets zoster pain and, and zoster rash involving the eye, they actually need to see an ophthalmologist very urgently. And for people that are immune compromised, the zoster can become a disseminated condition and this means they can actually get really quite sick. So they're another group that we really do want to prevent from getting zoster in the first place. So recently we've actually seen that your Getting zoster can increase the risk of stroke. So the data here are from three studies looking at stroke and TIAs and a further study looking at myocardial infarction. And it's looking at the time interval after people got zoster. And you can see that in the first three to four weeks, the odds of getting, um, having a stroke after a bout of zoster are about 50 to 60% higher in terms of, you know, sort of stroke or TIA and something like 30% higher for myocardial infarction. And if you look at the bottom of the table, you can see that risk gradually declines, that largely it's, it's eliminated after about six months and, and the risk has gone by a year. So reassuringly, and if you look, focus on the graph, because it's probably easiest to understand, is we need to ask the question, by having a zoster vaccine, does that reduce that risk of the stroke? And you can see in that survival curve in the bottom, the blue bars are the people that actually, uh, who've actually had the zoster vaccine, their incidence of stroke was lower than the group of people who had not had zoster vaccine. And that's most pronounced in those under 80, so there's about a 20% reduction, and it's less pronounced in people over the age of 80 where there's about a 10% reduction. So this, is, uh, this was largely follow-up in a separate Medicare study looking over a nine-year period in the US, and they looked at all the people who'd actually received the vaccine, so it was a very large numbers, and they tracked the, uh, the, the incidence of stroke. And so, as I said, the, the incidence dropped about 20% in those under the age of 80 who got the singles vaccine, and in those over the 80, it was reduced by about 10%. Now, vaccines. What vaccines have we got available to prevent zoster? Well, up until June last year, we only had Zostavax, which is a live attenuated vaccine. That was launched in November 2016. June of last year, the recombinant Zoster vaccine was given the Guernsey by the TGA, and Targi has made a recommendation that that should be used, and I'll go into that in more detail at a later point. It's interesting to note the number needed to treat to prevent one case of zoster is about 12 with the recombinant vaccine, and it's about 45 with the live attenuated vaccine. And I'll show you some data uh, later, which will actually highlight that the uh, recombinant vaccine is, is much more effective in terms of the level of protection it provides both against herpes zoster and PHN. Uh, it also is quite cost effective, um, but at the moment we don't actually have the uh, recombinant vaccine on the National Immunisation Programme. So what does Targi have to say about the zoster vaccine and which one we should get? So if you look at the bottom part of the slide there, 
they are recommending that people get the recombinant zoster vaccine starting at the age of 50, and that's preferred over the live attenuated vaccine. They're also saying in people who are immunocompromised, really the um, recombinant zoster vaccine, Shingrix, is recommended. Uh, the problem with Zostavax being a live attenuated virus is you have the risk of actually developing varicella from the vaccine uh, in people who are immunocompromised. And there have been three deaths worldwide, uh, one in the UK and two in Australia, where people have had an immunocompromised condition who have received the Zoster vaccine and have subsequently died. They've updated their guidance because they've got now more information on the studies with people with immunocompromised and they have actually now suggested that people who are over the age of 18 who are at increased risk of zoster should be getting the Shingrix or the recombinant vaccine. Uh, the first point also notes that they've extended the Zostavax program on the National Immunisation Program uh, out for another two years. And that program is offering the Zostavax to those 71 to 79. Uh, that's offered free and that's offered in people who are immunocompetent. The questions that are still waiting at Targi Gardens is that which groups will be eligible? You know, are they going to give some clarity on terms of who's at increased risk? And what's the age and timing with respect to immunosuppressant therapy? So if you imagine someone on chemotherapy has cycles of that, is there a best sweet spot of when to give the vaccine so that you can actually get the immune system to respond to that vaccine? So that information will be coming sometime soon. So just looking at the uptake of Zostavax, and this started in November 2016. You've got three studies looking at this. The group that, we, uh, that I work with, we actually looked at the antiviral prescribing, and these antivirals were only used for Zostavax, and we followed a period in a number of years leading up to the availability of vaccine, and then subsequently, and we actually looked at what happened to the prescribing rate. And the hypothesis was that by giving the Zostavax vaccine, we would actually see less cases of acute Zoster and therefore there'd be less antiviral prescribing. The second middle bar there is done by the National Centre of Immunisation and Surveillance. And they actually found that the level of Zostavax recorded on the Australian Immunisation Register was really only about 30 to 35%. So it was much lower than the level of antiviral prescribing change that we had seen um, and so we had we had an estimate of the vaccine being taken up by about 60%. A third group looked at a de-identified data source uh, of GP medical records and looked at the history of recording of Zoster and they found that nearly 49% of people had actually had been administered the Zoster. So if we have to interpret all of that we probably in the 70 to 79 year age group got about 50 to 60% of that population having the Zoster vaccine. And this is the main results that we showed. So we found a 13% yearly reduction over the next couple of years following the introduction of that. And that was largely confined to the group that was 70 to 79 because they were the people getting the vaccine. There was really no trend in the 60 to 69. There's a little bit of a downturn in the over 80s, but those people started in this study prior to being age 80, so some of them would have got the Zostavax vaccine. So when we take that group out and we look at the people who are exclusively over 80 for the period of study that the vaccine was available, there was actually no decline in the antiviral prescribing, so that it's actually had an impact on the disease. What do GPs have to say about Zostavax? Well, there was a convenience study done and published recently in the CDI, 
and it was a, it was only it was about a thousand GPs, and I think there are a couple of points which have been really highlighted in red here, and it actually explains why there's a difference between the immunisation register and the antiviral prescribing and in the records. So over a third of them actually never gave the vaccine for whatever reason. They weren't, no, they weren't um, offering that to the group who are eligible. And nearly a quarter were actually not reporting it. So they might have given the vaccine, but it was actually not recorded in the Australian Immunisation Register. So that accounts for some of the discrepancy between what's recorded in their records or antivirals and what the, a, the um, a, AIR, the Australian Immunisation Record, um, is reporting. Uh, some of the reasons what they were reporting as barriers, and this was about 20% of the GPs, was that timely available of good information around that. There were supply issues in terms of getting enough doses. There was some uncertainty about the contraindications in terms of assessing immunocompromise. And there was a, no, a limited public awareness about the vaccine and its, and its relative safety. So what are the things that will make a difference to get the Zoster vaccine, now that we have another vaccine available. And one of the challenges we've got is that this new vaccine that's available is actually not on the NIP, so there is going to be a cost issue. So this is, this is taken out of one of the previous papers that Tony Cunningham and I did, looking at all of the factors that we know influence Zoster uptake. And we start the ones that reduce uptake, and people who have a sense that natural immunity is better, that they don't need it because they're well, or they think that they've got a very low risk of getting Zoster, that's a problem. And in addition, other beliefs about whether it works, you know, are they going to have a reaction to that, uh, perhaps needle phobia as well. But just note also that if the GP doesn't discuss it, that actually reduces the likelihood. Some patients take that, that when you don't discuss it, that you've made a decision for the patient that that doesn't need it, and they don't ask about that, about whether it should be happening. On the positive side, what influences vaccination? If you're older, if you're female, higher levels of education. If you have a history of actually getting the Zoster vac and other vaccines, you're more likely to respond to that. If you have an awareness of shingles, and particularly the vaccine and things like PHN, then that increases the likelihood. And if you believe it can be a serious condition, that also has an influence. What's really strong there, and you can see the little, the little uh, Know, risk ratio in red, that if you made a recommendation to the patient to get the Zoster vaccine, after we adjusted for all of these factors, the patient was nearly 10 times more likely to get it. And often, as we see on a subsequent slide, that if you actually uh, look at the negative attitudes here, we can see that people, you know, and in the second column, that's the instance of that. So sometimes people do have a fair level of of misinformation or confusion about that, but where the GP recommends it, you can see that the level of vaccine coverage is 20 to 30% higher, even in the presence of that belief or concern still being present. And so, you know, things like fear of needles or fear of adverse reactions or feeling it's not needed, uh, a GP recommendation doesn't convince everybody, but actually has quite a big impact on the likelihood. And in the final column, and I won't go into these in detail, here are some suggestions of the sort of things you can say to people about what do you need to do to get the Zoster vaccine. Now, how to, how to tackle cost, how to tackle vaccine effectiveness, how to ta tackle the issue of natural immunity. Uh, this is a bit more of the same with some of those other attitudes. Again, you can see in the second column the amount of 
uh, people who are either uncertain about that or who have somewhat of negative perceptions. And again, the repeat there that if a person has a recommendation, even when that negative belief persists, they are much more likely to get the vaccine. We can reassure people that the evidence around these is very robust. The side effect profile, there are no severe side effects. Uh, notwithstanding with Zostavax, we, we don't need to give it to, or we don't want to give it to people with immunocompromised. And so clearly a GP recommendation is a very simple strategy and should be adopted by everybody. So what's new? Well, we've actually now got a potent vaccine with a high level of protection, and it can be used in immunocompromised uh, populations. And that's a breakthrough in older people. Largely, we've actually had the um, zoster vaccine having about a 50% reduction in herpes zoster, and that went down to about 30% if you were over the age of 70. And with these vaccines, you actually get a very high level of protection with the recombinant vaccine. And so this is a, a sort of a graph showing the decline in immunocompromise. And you can see the dashed line there for people that have got um, some sort of immunosuppressing condition or a treatment like one of the biologics or high-dose steroids that's suppressing their immune system, then their immune decline is much earlier than most of us where it's age-related and happens after the age of 50. So these people are getting zoster at a younger age and are more likely to get it uh, a recurrent a recurrence of the disease. So this recombinant vaccine is called Shingrix and there are two parts to it. There's a glycoprotein E antigen, which is a core um, epitope on the varicellarivirus and is actually a potent immune stimulator and that's been coupled with a new um, enhanced adjuvant system. And so the combination of the two is, is meant that we actually get a much higher level of protection both with the antibodies but more importantly with the person's cell-mediated immunity. So these are the two pivotal studies if we look at the effectiveness. So there's ZOE50 for those in adults over the age of 50 and there's a second study which was focusing on the ages of 70 and both were looking at the effectiveness against Zoster but there was a particular interest in also seeing what impact it was on post-hepatic neuralgia. These vaccines are administered as two doses with an interval of about two months. And you can see that there were large numbers in the study. It was a randomised double-blind controlled trial. And in terms of the enrolment, there were nearly 17,000 people who were included. So what's the main results? So the good news here, if we look at the ZOE50 study, is that across the age cohorts, age cohorts up to the age of 70, that the level of vaccine protection is around 95%. No other vaccine in older people has that level of protection. In the ZOE 70 study where the, the results were pulled, so there were some people who were over uh, 70 in the ZOE 50 study, including those exclusively in the ZOE 70 study, so those numbers were combined, and you can see there's a slight decline, but largely the effectiveness against Zoster is over 90% in all of those age groups, even in the over 80-year-olds. So they're the ones with the highest risk. So take-home message from this is that it's a very effective vaccine. This is the um, summarising the data against PHN. So that was the second output. If you look at the VE, that's the vaccine effectiveness. In the ZOE50 study, there was a 91% reduction in, um, in post-hepatic neuralgia. And in the over 70, there was 88% the confidence intervals for those two overlapped. And so largely in both studies, you're getting a very high level of protection against PHN. 
Other complications like some of the cranial nerve palsies, transverse myelitis, ophthalmic zoster, again, high levels of protection, 94% in the over 50 and 92% in the over 70. So in terms of the major endpoints, clearly the vaccine is actually having a really big impact. So what about immunocompromised patients? So this is a table out of a recent paper by Tony Cunningham and colleagues in the BMJ, and they looked at vaccines in older people. But in one of the tables here, it really summarised what we know about immunocompromised groups. So we can say the vaccine is safe because it's not a live vaccine. So people are not going to get varicella having this vaccine. But the two important questions is, do they actually get an immune response? And here we've actually reported both the antibodies and the T cells. So I'd focus on the third column because the T cell ones are more important. That's the main level of protection against zoster. And then the third question we want to know is, well, if they get uh, improved T cells, does that translate into reduction in zoster? And so at the moment, we've really only got randomised trial data from the um, stem cell transplant group, uh, largely on both zoster and post-hepatic neuralgia. We have one piece of clinical data for those with hematologic malignancies. But we have reassuring data, if you look at that third column, that all of those groups, people with HIV with a decent CD4 count, people who've had a renal transplant and those with solid malignancy, with chemotherapy, you've actually got levels of the T cells responding in terms of the protection of something between 71 and 86%. Um, the solid organ is slightly lower and that might reflect the timing of the dose and that's an issue that still needs to be um, sorted out. I guess we also, what, what's the duration of the immunity? How, much, how long is this you know, sort of uh, protection going to last? So again, if we look at the purple graph there and we follow it out to eight years, you can see there's very little decline in the, C, you know, the CD4 count in terms of protection against uh, zoster. It, it really is a very minimal amount of waning compared to what we've seen with Zostavax. And the modelling data suggests that we're probably going to get protection out to about 15 years or so. So that's very good news. Um, that's a much longer degree of protection than people are uh, going to get from Zostavax. So this is just showing the main study, and it's actually showing the decline in each of the years. So you can see there is a little bit of waning. This teases that some of that out, is that by year four, 88% of the people had had a level of you know, protection against um, herpes zoster compared to after the first year, about 98%, but still a very respectable level and much higher than with Zostavax. We need to talk about side effects. So this is looking at local reactions. The purple bars are the Zoe 50 group, they're the younger group. The maroon bars are those over the age of 70. And you can actually see that um, the, you're going to have some sort of reaction in about four out of five people. So the people are going to need to be warned about that. Local pain is very common. Redness and swelling are between a quarter and a third of patients. The reassuring thing is that most of these are only going to last for a couple of days or so at most. And largely, most people in the pivotal studies didn't pull out because of the adverse reactions. So the hatch bars on the, on the same slide show the level of severe reactions. So these are regarded as grade three. And reassuringly, they're all under about 10%. But they can certainly happen with, those, with people so that they need to be warned about those things. If we look at systemic symptoms, again, something like 50% of people are going to get that higher in the younger age group, those over 50, and slightly lower in the groups over 70. But fatigue, headache and myalgia are common, less so fever, GI symptoms and shivering. 
And again, if we have a look at the grade three reaction, you can actually see that that's under 10% in terms of them having a, a more severe systemic reaction post the, the um, recombinant zoster vaccine. So who gets it and are there any contraindications? Well, I've sort of covered, I've covered it to a certain extent, but largely it is for the prevention of both zoster and post-hepatic neuralgia and it's recommended in those over the age of 50, and there's the updated ATAGI recommendations, is that those over the age of 18 who are at increased risk of zoster, and that still needs to be clarified about who that includes, uh, they should be getting it. Shingrix is not available on the NIP, so people are going to be out of pocket probably somewhere between $250 and $300 dispensed per dose, and people need two doses two months apart. So there is going to be an issue of people um, stumping up for that. You'll get something back from the private health insurance and veterans, I think, get access if they've got a DVA gold card. Um, you do not give this to anybody who's had a history of a reaction to Shingrix or to any of the excipients. Fortunately, this is very, very uncommon. Perhaps there's some remaining questions about the uh, recombinant vaccine. So what if you've had shingles? Well, the current um, advice is you need to wait 12 months after a bout of shingles, because you're going to get some boosting of the immunity by having had shingles, but that's going to decline over time. So that you know, I would say after 12 months, that's when you should be giving it. And that's certainly what Atagi is saying. Very, sim very similar advice for people who've had the Zostavax vaccine, so that you could actually give that uh, 12 months at a minimum after they've had um, a Zostavax. And certainly in a, that, that's going to provide a, a bit of boosting. In terms of people with um, immunomodulating conditions, we've answered some of those questions, so we know it's safe in terms of not going to cause zoster. We know in a number of those conditions, and we're still getting evidence in around the other groups that I haven't discussed, is that you can actually get an immune response which is meaningful, and we're still gathering clinical data in terms of the impact of whether that actually translates into the reduction of um, clinical cases of zoster and post-hepatic neuralgia. So, can you get zoster more than once? Yes, um, you can, and risk is about 5 to 10% of the population are going to probably have a second bout. This is much higher in people that are immunocompromised. Do we need to do serology? Really, um, if, you've got, if you've had HIV or you've had some other condition where you're actually concerned and you don't really know, then it is worth doing varicella serology to check whether they've actually had previous exposure. But people who've said they've not had it in the past, most of the time it's fair to assume that they are. If you can establish from serology or a very careful history the person has not had varicella, then they would actually need to get the varicella vaccine and they would need two doses of that. Um, but you still can actually give a dose of the zoster vaccine if it's really uncertain. So immunocompromise, I think that's still a work in progress. Uh, Tony Cunningham has an article which is going to be out soon in Medicine Today that provides a very nice table on mild, moderate and severe immunocompromise, uh, but we don't have that available or able to access it for this particular presentation. And what about co-administration? Largely you can give it with all the COVID vaccines. There's a recommendation not to give it with the other enhanced flu vaccine, Fluad, which is the one recommended for those over the age of 65. And there's very limited data in terms of the conjugate pneumococcal vaccine. So that would probably be best to separate that by a period of time. Thank you for joining us. We hope you are enjoying this series and will recommend it to your friends and colleagues. I'm Linda Calabresi 
and on behalf of the team here at HealthEd, I look forward to joining you soon for our next podcast. If you enjoyed this audio segment, you can find out more about our free webcast lectures, which can be accessed from any device on our website at healthed.com.au. The podcasts published on this page are for medical professionals only. The content is not a substitute for medical advice. If you have a health issue, you should seek the advice of a suitable qualified health professional.